So I got an amazing story that I want to share with you this morning, and uh, it does not involve vomit. So, right? Um, I think someone actually went, oh, in the back. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, no, this, this story is, is about a time of panic for the people of Israel. It's a time of hopelessness for Moses, and, and really it's arguably one of those load-bearing stories you'll find for the Bible. And what I want to encourage you to do is take out your phone. And what I'd like you to do is turn with me to Exodus chapter 3 and follow along with this. Now, I'm going to be reading this out of the message version. You read it out of your favorite. But I do want you to key in with me to Exodus 3. We're going to start at verse 1, this incredible story that carries so much weight. And come to terms with who God is. Here's what it says. Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro. That's his father-in-law. The priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west end of the wilderness and came to the mountain of God, Horeb. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in flames of fire, blazing out of the middle of a bush. He looked. The bush was blazing away, but it did not burn up. So Moses said, hey, what's going on here? I can't believe this. Amazing. Why doesn't this bush burn up? Yahweh saw that he had stopped to look, and God called to him from out of the bush. Moses! Moses! He said, yes, I'm right here. Has this ever happened to you? Your vegetation ever speak? If it did, would you answer? God said, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. Yahweh said, I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain. And now I've come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey. The Israelite cry for help has come to me. And I've seen for myself how cruelly they've been treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses answered God, But why me? What makes you think that I could ever go to Pharaoh and lead the, chil the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'll be with you, God said. And this will be the proof that I am the one who sent you when you have brought my people out of Egypt. 
You will worship God right here at this very mountain. Now, in case you're confused or in case you've drifted, I just want to read that one more time. I'll be with you, God said, and this will be the proof that I am the one who sent you. This will be the proof, okay? What will be the proof? Well, that when you have brought my people out of Egypt, you will worship God right here at this very mountain. Does that feel odd to you? Have you ever asked God for a sign? You don't have to raise your hand, but have you? Have you ever asked God for proof? Have you ever yearned or longed in your heart? God, show me something so that I can trust you or come to terms that you're true. And here in the story, God chooses to give Moses proof. But isn't it like the most maddening proof you've ever read in your life? I mean, does God have a sense of humor or what? Never, ever, ever doubt that God has a sense of humor. Oh, you want, okay, here's proof. Do everything I'm going to tell you, and, and then when it comes true, you know, I'll show you, and, and that'll be your proof. That doesn't really help me in the moment, does it? Welcome to the living God. Then Moses said, because of course, you're not going to take that. Well, suppose I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your fathers sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? God said to Moses, and I want you to hear this phrase carefully in the original tongue. Ehye, Esher, Ehye. God said to Moses, when asked about his name, Ehye, Esher, Ehye. Now, Esher, that's just a Hebrew word. It means who or which or something like that. Say it with me, Esher. Say the whole phrase with me now, Ehye, Esher, Ehye. Now, let's do it together. Ehye, Esher, Ehye. What is God's name? That's what God says. Ehye, Esher, Ehye. Now you may know the name is Yahweh. You may have heard it that way. I don't need to get into the grammar of this, but it's basically a form of the verb to be. You know the verb to be is, am, are in English. What is it in German? Ich bin, du bist, er, ist. What is it in French? I don't know, like je suis, uh, tu as, or something like that, right? Yeah, you guys know it. Every form of the verb to be, and no matter how many languages you have, it's weird. It does its own thing. We don't say I am, he am. We just get hives over something like that. That. But I tell you, people who learn the language, they get hives too, because it's like, why do you got to do that, right? It's the same in Hebrew and every other language. If you want to say, I am, Ehye. But if you make a third person and say, he is, Yahweh, yeah, Ehye, Yahye, you can kind of hear the link between the two. I am who I am. I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel. Ehye, I am, sent me to you. God continued with Moses. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, 
sent me to you. This has always been my name. And this is how I will always be known. This story with Moses at the burning bush climaxes with a name. It climaxes with God sharing his name. Now up to this point, God had been far more widely referred to as El Shaddai. El Shaddai roughly gets translated something like God Almighty. You can ask Amy Grant if you want to know more. The name Yahweh appears in the Bible all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. But when people would call on God, think about God, conceptualize God, they would do it by this title, by this term, El Shaddai, the Almighty One, God, God, you know, God, the Almighty One. But here, God does something different. He introduces himself, not by a concept, not by a title, not with formality. He introduces himself by name. I almost want you to think about it like God extending his hand through a burning bush, saying, hi, I'm Yahweh. It's wild that God, God the Almighty, God the Unknowable, God the Vast, God the Incredible, would introduce himself to someone by name. That he would come down, that he would walk across the room, that he would make the initiative to come to someone else and introduce himself by name. Can I ask? When you think about God, don't you tend to think about it as though it is the human experience to try to figure out who he is? That humans seek God. That humans go looking for God, groping around, trying to figure out who God is. But that's not the story we have here in Exodus 3. What we have here is that story flipped on its head. We have not people groping, looking for God, but God coming and revealing himself, saying, look, it's me. This is who I am. I am Yahweh. You know, from the beginning, the time of Enosh, people have sensed that there's something more, higher, bigger. Am I right? You go back to the beginning of human history and it's near universal. People sensing that there's something more than this and not just a something, but a someone. In other words, not just a principle that kind of knits it all together, but a being of sorts. Of course, people come to sense this and feel this and to this conclusion, I think, in all different kinds of ways. I think some just look around and they look at the grandeur of the universe. They look at creation. They look at this world, this universe that we live in that not only is so amazing in all of its complexity and beauty, but in all of its complexity, how harmoniously it works together, how fine-tuned it seems to be in various ways. Everything, billions upon billions of moving parts in this world that we know, orchestrate together to create some kind of symphony that we call creation. And so many people have just looked at this and go, there has to be something behind it. There has to be some 
something more. There has to be someone behind this level of creation. Stuff like this just doesn't seem to happen by accident. Others have approached it in other ways. They just seem to sense that there's something more even beyond or something behind even the physical realm. But these ideas of right and wrong, of good and evil, that, 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 that something like good and evil exists, that there's principles in this world that everyone seems to agree on, even if not in the details, at least in principle, that there, there is something like justice and what is just that exists, and therefore things that are fundamentally right and things that are fundamentally wrong, that there's something of values like mercy and compassion and love in this world, and that there has to be something behind it, that it has to come from somewhere else because no one really seems to do them, or at least not well. And yet all people still seem to cling to a near similar Ideal. Some have seen these kinds of things, sensed these kinds of things, and said, not something, but someone has to be behind it. Others have arrived at this place, maybe you, just because there's a longing. A longing that humanity seems to have for something that this world cannot fill. A longing for something more that nothing can quite fill the way that, if you allow me the term, God can or will. And of course, there are some who look at these reasons by which people come to this sense and, and many others that I don't have time to explain and will reject them. You know, looking instead at the chaos maybe of the world, the seeming randomness of the world, the suffering that exists in the world and so say, no, I don't think that those things could exist if there was a God. And maybe I'm speaking to some of the things that you've wrestled with or sensed or felt or believe. My point is simply to say that while that challenge has always been there, it really hasn't held sway for most people or for most of history. Through most of history and for most people at every point in history, it seems that there is instead this idea, this longing that there's something bigger, something greater, something more, and not a something but a someone. I mean, the human experience, it's, it's really marked, isn't it, by a quest for people to discover God? I mean, some pour their life into it, heart and soul. Some flirt with it on the margins, but at some level, it seems central to the human experience that all of us are in a quest to discover God. Who is he? or she, or it, or they. I mean, I like how Isaiah wrestles with this. 
Let me read this to you today. Look at how he puts it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand have marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who? Who do you think? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? The mind of Yahweh. Or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did Yahweh consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? What's the implied answer to this? No one. Or how Paul puts it in Romans 11. Oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of Yahweh or has been his counselor? What's the implied answer? Who? No one. No one has. No one has been. Here's a uh, slightly misleading but interesting translation that comes out of the message. I like how it puts it. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God? This deep, deep wisdom, have you? Have you ever come across anything like that? That's what it's asking. It's way over our heads. It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. It says, people searching for God kind of seem like Paul groping around blind in the dark, looking for someone to guide him by the hand. Maybe it's been like that for you. I've seen some people in this, this quest, if I can put it that way, just kind of throw up their hands. You know, they throw up their hands and they go, who knows? And they dismiss any attempt or any ability to know God and go on to simply just fabricate a philosophy of life that seems right in their own eyes and proceed to just carry on and do what's right in their own eyes. More often I see people kind of retreat back into that old Hindu proverb of the blind men and the elephant. You know this one? I'm sure you've heard it. The story goes that three blind men are stumbling along the path and they come across an elephant. But they don't know, of course, what it is. So as they're each groping around this big mammoth thing, one is feeling around the face and they feel this long, narrow, what we would know to be a trunk. And they feel and they go, hmm, this thing that I've come across, it's like a rope. It's like a snake. The other groping along comes up against the elephant's side. And he feels this big, broad, flat, hard surface. 
this thing we've come across, it's like a wall. Another groping around one of its feet feels how it's planted and sturdy and thick and strong. And as he feels it and wraps his arms around it, this thing we've come across, it must be a tree. Neither, of course, able to see and know what they're feeling, but coming to very different conclusions, aren't they? A wall, a rope, a tree. And of course, the metaphor of the story is meant to analogize people's quest for God. That at some level, it's like we're all groping around in the dark and coming across facets angles, pieces, glimpses of the great unknown and drawing all kinds of conclusions upon it that while are partially right, nonetheless fundamentally wrong. And of course the point is that all, all religions, all ideas, all belief systems are at some level fundamentally right and some level fundamentally wrong in our quest for God. It's kind of a cool story, isn't it? And it kind of has this sense of like, hmm, I got to think about that one a little bit. But you know what the problem with the story is? It assumes you know it's an elephant. Because the storyteller is fundamentally saying, you're blind, I'm not. You're groping in the dark, but I truly see. I'm enlightened and I see, and I can tell you that it's an elephant, but if the story's true, no one sees. So no one knows. So how can anyone fundamentally know when the story defeats itself? Now, something I've seen happen more among Christians in this quest for God is they'll say things like this. God is just too big. Isaiah himself seems to say, God is too big. Let's not define him. You can't put God in a box. And I hear this from so many well-meaning Christians. Of course, I hear a lot of stupid things from well-meaning Christians. And I want to guard you against that line of thinking. I mean, no disrespect if you've fallen into that trap because it really kind of hums with a ring of truth and it does really seem to have kind of a reverence and a piety around it. But you know what I found? The way it's always used is for lazy thinkers. People who just don't want to think about it anymore. And so this is just going to settle the matter. I'm not going to do the hard work. I'm not going to search. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to critique. We're just going to go, hmm, who can ever know, and just shut the argument down. If you find yourself going that path in your thinking, guard yourself against it. And here's the reason why. Not because I'm telling you. Because God is. Because that's just not the picture that the Bible will give you. Isaiah has a very different message. What Isaiah says is that the vast, unseen, unknowable God is a God who reveals himself 
and makes himself known. Hey, hi, I'm Yahweh. You can know who I am. And you can know things about me. Hey there, hi, I'm Yahweh. Let me introduce myself to you. Tell you who I am and what I'm like. Yes, you can know. You can know things about me too. What's the thrust of Isaiah? Who can know God? The mind of God, the purpose of God? Well, at one level, no one. What's the thrust of Isaiah? Who can know God, the mind of God, the purpose of God? Those to whom God reveals himself to. I love how Isaiah puts this. Give me the passage, please. I am Yahweh, the one and only. I don't just talk to myself or mumble under my breath. Don't you love that? I am Yahweh. I work out in the open, saying what's right, setting things right. I am Yahweh. You can know me. I am Yahweh. I am introducing myself to you. The irony of God, of course, is that he's still big and vast and beyond our thinking. And God's very name even has a sense of elusivity to it. Who are you? Well, I am. I I mean, you know, okay. And yet, I am shows you what he's up to. And by showing you what he's up to, you can discern what he's like. And when you miss what he's like, he says, let me clarify it for you. The inner dialogue of Isaiah is coming to terms with a vast, unseeable, unknowable God who makes himself known to his people. Because by knowing him, you can trust him. And by trusting him, you can come to love him. And by coming to love him, you can have a relationship with him. Not just an idea of a principle or a force, but a relationship is real or vibrant, no, more real and more vibrant than the closest and most intimate relationship that you can have with the people you are closest and most intimate with in this world. That you can know God. Steve and I were talking about it this week and I loved how he put it. He said, you can't really have a relationship with a burning bush, can you? I mean, you can marvel at a burning bush. You can acknowledge the existence of a burning bush. You can even love a burning bush. 
but you can't be close to a burning bush. But Yahweh comes out of that bush. And as Moses hides his face to the ground for fear of seeing God, introduces himself and says, hi, I'm Yahweh. I want to get to know you. The vast, unseeable, unknowable God is reaching down. He is reaching down saying, I am Yahweh. I want to get to know you. God wants to know you and to be known by you. There's this writer, his name is Ekrad. You don't care, but I do. But I think you would like his quote. By his own act of bestowing a name on himself, God chooses to be described as the definable, the distinctive, and the individual. And it's a question really of whether you're going to primarily trust your own thinking on this. Or what the prophets like Isaiah and Jesus and Peter and John and Moses and Paul and all the others have seen and discovered and have to say to you. This is why as Christians this always has served as the foundation for our understanding about God because when dealing with something so big, so vast, so unknowable, it's so easy to come to so many outlandish conclusions that at some point are fundamentally uncertain are wrong, but God has been in the business of revealing himself to his people. This is what Jesus has come to show. Let me show him to you. Let me introduce Yahweh to you again and again and again, coming down, inviting you to meet him, to know him, to trust him, to love him. And what I found is when you come to meet him and know him and love him and trust him, things like panic, they dissipate. Fear does not go away. Not entirely. But when you know that the almighty power of the universe who is good and kind and personable has come to know you. You can stand your ground or go through anything you'll face. I want to close this out with a quote by the prophet Peter who writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord or maybe Yahweh, Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
He goes on to say, you know, we've received honor and glory. Uh, He received honor and glory from God the Father. And we saw it when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, sharing the times and the ways that they saw God come down and say, hi, I'm Yahweh. Hi, my son is Yahweh. Get to know him. And he goes on and says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We live in a world of people groping in the dark. Looking for God. Wondering who he or she or it or they might be and what he or she or it or they might be like. Peter has a different message for you. Pay attention. He would do well to do it. Pay attention to what Jesus has said and to what he's shown you like a light shining in a dark place. Because not only will you see, but by it you will see until the morning star rises of God's coming again. I hope you get to know him.